Hello and welcome to another episode of Beyond Busy, the show where we talk productivity, work-life balance and defining happiness and success. My name is Graham Alcott, I'm your host for the show and on this episode I'm talking to Stephen Brobst. Stephen is the CTO of a company called Teradata, one of the most influential companies in the world that you have never heard of, more of which in a few moments. So I'm sat in Brighton, sat on the steps overlooking the garden, beautiful sunny June day. These are the days that you tolerate the wind and the rain the rest of the year for. Really beautiful day today and going to be spending uh, the afternoon in the garden. And uh, the garden's looking really good because I've been on sabbatical and so I've had time to actually deal with the garden and stuff. And I'm coming to the end of this six-month sabbatical period Starting to get energised, starting to get excited about work again. Not exactly sure what I'm going to do, uh, but I've got another kind of couple of weeks. Then I've got uh, some big meetings that are happening within Think Productive, within my company. And then um, towards the end of the summer, I will get back into into work mode and start thinking about the book and various other things. So, yeah, excited about that. Also excited about the general election. So we just had an election here in the UK. And the most important thing for me, which I think has been underplayed, actually, in all the, the talk of the rise of Jeremy Corbyn, I think the the big issue for me has been that young people got out to vote. And I think that really is a seismic shift. I think we're going to start to see politics done in quite a different way. I've talked for a while and I've been very passionate for a while about this idea of intergenerational inequality and the fact that young people these days have i think a much rougher deal in many ways than than you know uh their uh previous couple of generations and i think the fact that young people got out to vote in such numbers this is going to change the game and i think that's really exciting and uh yeah i'm i'm infused by it for the first time in a long time it feels like there's there's potential debate and scrutiny and change and i think actually a hung parliament's probably even the best result because i think it will just give time to just kind of air lots of issues and have lots of uh, interesting debates about the future of the country and all that sort of thing which as a person who gets very very geeky about politics i think is a good thing so yeah excited about that beautiful sunny day and let's get on to this conversation with stephen brob so i met stephen at a reception and we got chatting about his travel lifestyle which really intrigued me Stephen basically has no sort of permanent home address lives his entire life traveling quite rapidly around the world and does a huge amount of flights a year and all that sort of thing and I just thought just a really interesting uh just a really interesting lifestyle to think about because I think you know when often when we think of work-life balance and when we think of how do we define happiness and success a home feels to me a very central part of that and also a very central part of that is often having experiences and travel and you know living life to the full and Stephen is certainly doing all of that stuff and doesn't seem to be missing the whole kind of home and security and you know having somewhere to come back to and, and hide away kind of thing that home often brings so just a really interesting guy um and just in terms of teradata you're going to hear more about this uh, during the interview but working with some of the leading companies in the world and really using big data to remodel business i mean it's it's huge work that steven's doing and i think he puts it across in a very simple uh, very accessible way here i can't i can't say that i 
went into this interview completely thinking I'd sort of nailed what big data was for or what the potential was and all that sort of thing. So I felt a little bit out of my depth in some of this conversation, I have to admit. Uh, but Stephen really puts it across very well and was patient and gracious with me when when I was totally out of my depth in those moments as well. Um, so you join us in Houston at the conference centre right next to Houston Station. Stephen had been, he was in London just for a day and a half doing a keynote at a Teradata conference and really kindly gave me uh, the best part of an hour of his time and booked a room so that we could just go go off and uh, uh, record the podcast there. So here we are in Houston. Stephen has delivered his keynote and has had various other meetings and then has been kind of ushered into the room with me for the podcast. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Stephen Brobst. Right, I'm here with Stephen Brobst. How are you doing? Uh, good, not bad after a red-eye flight from New York City. So red-eye flight last night, was it? Yes. Yeah, and then keynote this morning. Yep, straight into the keynote. Yeah, and so we're at 30 Euston Square, uh, right next to uh, London Euston train station. Yep. And it's the, what's the full title of the conference today? So it's a Teradata conference. It's a Teradata Innovation Forum. So there's a, a mix in the afternoon. There's kind of a technical track and a business track. Yeah. Uh, so what we do is deliver business solutions enabled by technology for doing data analytics. And so you've got some people that are worried about how to make the technology work and some people worried about how to extract the value from the from the business and they've got sort of different customers talking about different aspects of that. So And you said like Teradata's uh client list is basically pretty much every business in the world that's using data. I wouldn't say every business in the world. It's it's really people who have a lot of data. So in in uh, you know, retail banking, in uh, telecommunications, in uh, retail. These are all, you know, uh, traditional Teradata strongholds, yeah. if you will. Yeah. Uh, and just for people who are not necessarily familiar with data and big data and all of that sort of stuff, maybe just like, can you give like an example of what one of those companies would use data for or how it, how it helps their business and just what Teradata's role in that would be? So basically, our role is not in the transaction processing bookkeeping part of the data. Our role is in helping people make better decisions. So if I'm a retailer like Tesco's, for example, who's one of the customers speaking today, uh, I might use uh, data to understand what is going to be the demand for a particular product on a particular day in a particular store so I have the right amount of inventory on shelf. And they would look at their what's on promotion. They would look at their current inventory position. They would look at sales trend at that store. They would even look at the weather outside. Right. So they yeah. actually look at the weather and uh, based on the weather, if the, if the weather is five degrees hotter in the first day of spring, then there's going to be a run on beer and hot dogs yeah, and right. things like that. So they're quite sophisticated in using the data to do that kind of thing for inventory forecasting. But right now, there's a very interesting kind of reinvention that's going on. And so I'm from Silicon Valley. Mm. In Silicon Valley, we say in the 21st century, all businesses either are data businesses, will be data businesses, or will be extinct. Right. Those are the okay. only choices. Yeah. And so if you look at you know automotive manufacturing, right, that used to be a business of you know steel and you know rubber and things like that. Mm. Now it's a business of software and data. Uh, if you look at Volvo Cars and their whole connected car initiative, it's all about data and how do you yeah. use data to avoid accidents, deliver efficiency in operating the car, in uh, uh, you know doing proactive maintenance, all those kinds of things. So, 
all about data. Of course, I'm very biased, but <laughs> yes. and so presumably a big part of that, you know, if you take the the Tesco example there, or even the automotive industry, then there's a huge thing there about efficiency, right? So like using data to project where demand's going to be, make sure that you've got the right resources to, to meet the demand, but also to make sure you, you're not overproducing or yeah, efficiency is stuff. part of it, but. Right now, there's really a reinvention going on, right? Mm. So uh, if you look at someone like uh, Volvo, the initial uses of the Teradata technology were to understand manufacturing processes and make them more efficient and higher quality vehicles and so on. But now right. it's really about transforming the business model. Right. You know, the, the, the shift from sort of optimizing the manufacturing efficiency and getting data from their SAP systems and things like that is very different than getting data from sensors and producing, you know, a completely different model of transportation where you don't even need a driver in the future, right? right? Yeah. And, yeah. you know, Volvo made this very uh, bold statement that by 2020, nobody will die in a Volvo car. Mm. That's a pretty strong statement, right? Now, of course, they can't prevent if you have a heart attack while driving a Volvo car, but even if that happens, the car will pull over automatically and hurt no one else in the car or no other car on the road. Right. All with sensor technology based on machine learning and data and so on. And like at CES, the computer electronics show in, in Las Vegas, they introduced a bicycle helmet, which is also sensor enabled. So now a Volvo car won't hit a bicyclist either. Right. So right. this is really changing. Yeah. It's not just making it more efficient. It's really changing the whole model and and introducing the car as part of the Internet of Things and yeah. connecting vehicles. And, uh, you know, it's it's really a different business model. It's not just making things incrementally more efficient. Yeah, yeah. So it kind of feels like, I mean, I was just um, waiting for you downstairs in the lobby there, and there's lots of people in little corners of the room having, you know, as, as often happens at conferences, just to sort of paint a picture for listeners, you get, like, the real business gets done over lunch and in the yeah, little, yeah, uh, you know, little sort of uh, nooks and crannies are around the room and stuff, and it kind of felt like there was, it kind of felt like you were definitely walking into somewhere where, uh, you know, the world is being changed here, even if perhaps I don't understand all of the reasons how, you know, it really kind of feels like there's, uh, there's a lot happening and there's a real buzz kind of around the place. So um, let's just talk about, um, so we met, like, a few months ago. Uh, one thing I was really interested in uh, when we were uh, talking was your... Uh, lifestyle and travel schedule and everything you do. So, I mean, uh, just to, uh, I'll, I'll put some details on the show notes in terms of your background for people. And I suppose one thing that really stood out to me around that was um, your, uh, in 2014, you were ranked the fourth highest CTO in the world. No, in the US only. In the US, okay. But, you know, in the world probably in terms of tech and that sort of thing, do you think? Like Silicon Valley and the states seems, be a, seems a to lead the way. Narrow minded. The, the US is the only place <laughs> I, as, where there's good tech. I think there's some good tech in the UK and Germany. And really? Japan. Okay. Uh, oh, I might. Look at, look at uh, Alibaba and so on. There's okay, uh, some yeah, good interesting. tech. So I think it would be a little bit. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, well, that's very kind of you to say because I think uh, us Brits often just look to Silicon Valley as, as sort of leading the way. But the, the I think it is a hotbed, but I think it would yeah. be uh, narrow minded to say that's where it all is. <laughs> And the top three of those CTOs uh, worked for Amazon, Tesla Motors, and Intel. Correct. Uh, and and then there's you working for for Teradata. And yeah. so, I suppose um, you know when I read that, I was like, man, like this, there's there's uh, uh, just some really like interesting stuff going on here that I that I uh, would love to uh, hear more about and and understand more. Uh, and the other thing I I, I dug up about you is. Um, you worked for Barack Obama on his President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology. Right. 
Um, so I'd love to just hear a little bit about what uh, you see the role of a, a CTO as as being, and just kind of just give us a flavour of that, and then also um, how you see that as kind of shaping society and, and you know working with the US government as you have done. So. In the context of Teradata, the CTO role is really to define the technology strategy for the products and technologies we deliver in enabling these business solutions uh, for data analytics, uh, but also for the deployment. So I'm uh, perhaps a little bit different CTO than some CTOs in, in mm-hmm. the sense that some CTOs are very, I'll say, lab-centric CTOs. Okay. And I'm a pretty customer-centric CTO. So my goal is to spend 50% of my time with customers understanding what they need, what they will need, uh, you know, how they think about things. And I have to be a little bit careful because oftentimes customers, they're, you know, they're solving a problem right in front of them. And you have to kind of look past that and sort of understand what that means in the long term and, you know, not transliterate everything you know too precisely but really sort of extrapolate what those bigger requirements are so so i uh you know i'm interested in understanding the business problems being solved and then how the teradata technology can use data to help enable those those business solutions uh and 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 how to make it deployable in an efficient way so it's it's all well and good to have a theoretical solution, but if it can't be used to yeah. create value, then who cares about it? So, mm. uh, so that that's my focus from a from a, from a Teradata point of view. Uh, and so I spent a lot of time in the labs with the, the engineers, but I also spent a lot of time with the customers, and I try to get a sort of good balance uh, in that. And we have a very distributed R and D team. We have you know uh, teams in India and China and the U.S. and you know uh, all of, in many different. Uh, yeah pockets in the world. And then tell me about advising the US government then, so in in terms of how they see the development of technology and how they see the use of data, like, you know, what what do you think the the next stages are? What do you you see the future as and and sort of your role within that? So this was actually during Barack Obama's first term of the presidency, so it wasn't that recent Mm. in technology terms, you know, uh, four years ago, it was a long time ago in in technology, but uh, having, having said that, um, we and we is this council of advisors. So there were basically twelve of us on this okay. uh, this uh, council, mainly academics uh, from universities like Carnegie mm. Mellon and Stanford and Berkeley and these types of yeah. places, University of Washington. Uh, so kind of the top technical universities in in, in the U.S. Mm. Uh, and uh, I was one of the three commercial people that was right. had a uh, you know. A, real job, if you want to say it that way, <laughs> although I'm kind of half academic, half uh, commercial anyway. But um, the uh, uh, the president gave us uh, a bunch of different areas where he wanted to improve quality of life for U.S. citizens. Mm. And nothing that would surprise you, healthcare, education, security, transportation, you know, all the, the normal stuff. Yeah. Uh, and our job was to make recommendations of where the U.S. government should be investing in long-term research and development for networking and information technology. Right. And so we produced a report, more like a book of 200 pages, making pretty detailed recommendations of where we think technology is going to go and what were the right investments in order to meet these goals of quality of life improvement in the particular areas that the the president had in mind, yeah, uh, and you know, the to, to 
summarize, uh, you know, the, the executive summary, the last sentence of the first paragraph, all federal agencies need to have a big data strategy. So in other mm -hmm. words, how are the agencies of the U.S. government, whether it's the transportation agency or the defense agency or whatever, how are they going to use data to be better at what they're doing? Because data is what makes the difference in you know, uh, decision-making and quality of life and so on. This wasn't just my conclusion. This was yeah, the right. group. Obviously, I have a data <laughs> bias, and, uh, but, but that's, uh, I mean, that's merited by the, the value that it creates. And sensor data in particular has uh, a very high value in a number of these different areas. Healthcare, mm. for example, will be you know, radically transformed as sensors become more prolific, not just in the hospital bed, but uh, you know, in, in consumerization of, of yeah. sensors will, will uh, cause uh, a huge increase in quality of care while simultaneously reducing cost of care, which healthcare industry really needs because healthcare is, mm. in any developed economy, basically unsustainable. UK is better than the US at kind of managing the quality cost trade-off, uh, but you know, even in the UK, the, the healthcare costs are rising faster than GDP, and it's yeah, unsustainable. Sure. And in the US, it's even worse, right? The US has probably the biggest problem of any developed country in terms of cost relative to quality is not there. Our, our costs are far, far higher than any developed country, and the quality is not better enough to justify that difference in cost. Right. And in terms of sense of technology for... Humans. I mean, do you think we will wear them? Do you think we'll have them implanted? Like, how do you how do you see that working? Uh, wearable sensors will be the the first round, but you know, depends what you call implant. So let me give you mm. an example. Um, there is a an R and D uh, uh, project uh, uh, done, you know, between a high tech company and a pharmaceutical company to uh, uh, essentially embed a sensor which is smaller than a grain of sand, has its own wireless communication, its own compute, and its own power supply in a contact lens. You put the contact wow. lens in your eye, and the sensor will detect the, the blood sugar level in your body based on the liquid of your eye. Wow. And that data is extremely important, for example, in making appropriate interventions with a diabetic. Yeah. Right? So is that embedding? Uh, kind of, right? I mean, mm. you're, you're wearing it in a contact lens, but it's, you know... It's a little bit more uh, embedded than, let's say, a you know Fitbit bracelet that you might be wearing, right? Yeah. But it's you know an Apple Watch, whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so you know, they'll be wearable, but it will be you know there'll be innovations in what wearable means. Yeah, and I guess in that instance, it's like it's uh, wearable, but you'd be you'd forget you were wearing it. Whereas exactly. you know with a Fitbit exactly. or whatever, it's it, you know it's chunky. You can see it there and then that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you're on the cusp of some really interesting work. Um, do you? Do you get that sense from the work that you do of, you know, that importance and, and sort of, uh, like, do, do you see yourself as an innovator and is that, is that, is that an important thing to you? Uh, innovation is definitely important, right? Uh, to create new things, new capabilities mm. is, uh, you know, I, I would like to sort of contribute to improving these different areas of quality yeah. of life. Many of the same that you know, uh, that uh, Barack Obama gave us to work on, which is one of the reasons sure. that I, why I accepted that, uh, that position. And I'm particularly interested in, in healthcare. I think it's a, it's a huge opportunity for improving, you know, 
quality of life. Yeah. Um, but do you see yourself as an innovator? Is that like an important part of your identity in that way? Yes. Although, you know, I, I don't think of myself as a pure inventor, mm. right? So it's it's really a very applied innovation, yeah. right? Uh, and, you know, and, and it's not me as an individual. It's, you know, uh, it's it's a very collaborative process. So it's not, you know, I'm an innovator. An innovator. It's, you know, I work with a team of people and we together innovate. And yeah. It's much yeah, more yeah. effective than... And like what you described a minute ago is that whole thing of there are certain CTOs that are the lab CTOs. Right. And then it sounds like you're definition of that is more it's the, i mean by the nature of it being customer focused is you're the listener guy right like you're out there like yes. sensing what's happening and trying to predict what's next i'm a listener of, and a translator yeah right? Right. so i've got to yeah. listen yeah. to what's going on i think that yeah listening is an underappreciated skill mm. uh the smartest guy in the room is not the one talking it's the one listening right yeah. And so, uh, and so, there's the listening part, and then there's the translation because a literal translation isn't going to get where you where you want to go. You need to sort of translate that to what is the implication in the longer term, mm. not just the six month implication, but yeah. the, the longer term. Because innovation, you know, if you're only doing sort of incremental improvement, that's not really innovation, yeah. right? And so yeah. you need to sort of think beyond the immediate, you know, what's in in front of yeah. your face to. The, the longer term implications. And do you think, do you think, sort of two part question, do you think you've always uh, thought for that longer term? And also, do you think, I kind of feel like um, most of us struggle to, uh, you know, to think that long term, you know, and certainly businesses and organizations tend to think, what's the next quarter or what's the thing I'm working on right now, rather than thinking in a much more long term way. So, I mean, do you feel like that's always come naturally to you? And do you get frustrated with? what you see around you, which is often more short-term thinking. No, I mean, I think that you need a combination of short-term thinking. You need to solve the initial problem because if you can't sure, solve the yeah. problem right in front of you, you can't yeah. think about the longer-term sure. things. So you need to do both. And, yeah. I, and I think that they, you know, they, they feed on each other because if you, if you don't understand how to solve immediate problems, then your long-term solution is probably not going to solve well the problems that come about at that time. Yeah. So yeah. I think a, a reasonable combination of, of, of the two uh, makes sense. So I like to work with customers and solve the problem that they have right in front of them and answer their, pro- their, their question about how do I make this technology work today? That, mm. that to me is fun to help solve a problem, right? Because I'm a problem solver. Uh, but, uh, you know, to, to sort of look forward and do that translation has a larger long-term impact. Yeah. Right? Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of your... Uh, like where you do your work and your lifestyle. So when we met before, you was, did you say to me something like you don't spend more than 10 days in the same... Five. Five, five days, okay. In the same city was the, is the policy kind of thing? It's more than... So in the last uh, more than 20 years, I've yeah. not spent more than five consecutive days in the same city right. with uh, two exceptions. And what were the exceptions? Uh, one exception was because I happened to be in New York City on 9-11. Oh, right. Basically, okay. I couldn't get out. Right. Okay. Uh, so that was one yeah. exception. The other exception is a, um art festival in the middle of the desert that I go to on a yearly basis called Burning Man. Right, okay. And that's pretty much the only thing that will keep my attention for more than five days because <laughs> I'm uh, chronically ADD that I need new stimulus and so on. Yeah. And, uh, and usually that means I have to sort of move around to uh, change the environment. But in yeah. Burning Man, there's so much stimulus that uh, 
it doesn't require me to move every five days. <laughs> yeah, and Cara, one of our colleagues in the Think Productive office, has just come back from Burning Man, full mm-hmm. of, as you can imagine, all the stories and uh, weird and wonderful things that she's shared yeah. off the back of that. So um, in terms of the places that you spend time, I mean, do you have a set schedule like I'm going to be in London at this time of year and then I'm going to be in Mexico at this time of year yeah, and stuff like that? Was it a little bit more fluid? schedule, right? Yeah. So I, there's certain times of year, like I, you know, when I go to uh, India and Pakistan, I tend to avoid monsoon season right. and, you know, uh, abnormally hot weather, so I tend to go to those places in you know December, January. Yeah. I tend to be in in Europe uh, in sort of May, June. By July, August, Europe is basically shutting down, so there's no point to be there, and so then I'll be back <laughs> in the U.S. or in Asia. Yeah. So there's kind of a general pattern that kind of fits the people that I want to spend time with and yeah. work with, and so on. And you know, there's certain music festivals I'm very into music so I kind of you know pivot around certain festivals like nice. Burning Man and yeah. Get Music Festival and things like that that I uh, you know and who are your favourite bands what, what, what kind of music do you know uh, I'm, I have a very diverse set of tastes I was a DJ for uh, almost 15 years okay. uh, probably my favourite is Nick Cave okay uh, yeah uh, the Australian who now lives in, in Brighton yeah just on the road from uh, me yeah, yeah so um so he's, he's probably my favorite. I think of him as a uh, a poet set to music. I mean, yeah. his, his, his lyrics are amazingly insightful. And, uh, cool. It's great for when you see Nick Cave in just in a shop, like just buying bread or whatever. He's a normal, normal yeah, guy. Yeah. But you sort of have this uh, image, of, I certainly have this image of Nick Cave that he shouldn't buy bread or do normal things. Like he sort of exists in another realm, but then you see him doing his, you know, domestic jewels and stuff it's quite entertaining but um, in terms of um, like how you move around then so does the work follow you or do you follow the work so you know if you go somewhere does that then attract the meetings that you want to set up or is it more that you're going to places because you've got particular clients or particular it, it's really you know, both. Is it both so there's yeah. you know there's typically some anchor event right that i'll be in some region for that event which might be Burning Man, or it might yeah. be Nick Cave, or it might be a board meeting that I'm going to participate in for one of our customers, or it's a big R&D review that I'm yeah. doing, you know, with a number of the Teradata R&D collaborators. And once I'm in that region, then I'll sort of add on and fill in the other pieces once I'm sure. there. Okay, I'm not just going to go in for that meeting. I'm going to sort of do a bunch of other stuff uh, along with it. So I kind of fill in the pieces in between the big events yeah, okay. uh, that, that draw me to a region. And where do you tend to stay? Do you stay with friends? Do you stay in Airbnbs? Like, what, what do you do? Uh, yeah, I have a very extensive friends and family network. I mm. almost never stay in hotels. I've done Airbnb a couple of times, but uh, it's not really, uh, not really what I do most yeah. of the time. Um, to me, it sounds like... I mean, I, I, so in November uh, this year, I'm going to ha- have a month in New Zealand and Australia and we'll do lots of flights in that time. And the last month or so has been lots of, you know, arranging the talks and arranging the workshops and the travel and all that sort of stuff. And like, there's just, you know, even with an assistant, it feels like there's a lot for me to think about around that. So to me, the idea of constantly being on the move and not having a base and not having a time where that stops like feels exhausting to me like do, you know do you get like how do you deal with that like how do you um, allow yourself to have that level of flexibility and how do you deal with the, the sort of planning and logistics around it 
Uh, well, I, I guess I think of it, for me it would be exhausting to go back to the same house every night and you know, mow the lawn and do whatever people do in their domestic uh, yeah, lives. Okay. So uh, for me, the the key thing is minimize, minimizing anything that doesn't matter. Yeah, okay. Right? So I don't own stuff, right, yeah. uh, that doesn't matter to me. And basically there are only two things that matter to me, and that's books and music. Yeah, Nothing so do you have a book matters. collection or a music collection somewhere in the world? Like, do you stash stuff somewhere? Yeah, I, I have I have stashes. Stashes, <laughs> okay. Uh, but, uh, you know, I don't own a car, I don't own yeah. a house, I don't own a television, I don't, any of that, mm. I don't want or need any of that stuff because I observe yeah. that people that have that stuff, that stuff owns them more than they own it. Yeah, and if you're traveling sure. all the time, you have to be worried about, ooh, you know, who's watering the lawn or, you yeah, know, is the yeah. house being broken into yeah. right now or, you know, whatever. And so I just don't have to deal with it. I, <laughs> I, I get rid of all that stuff. So yeah. simplification makes it a lot easier to do the travel because you worry mm. about a lot less stuff. Uh, and, you know, when you've been doing it for over 20 years, you get pretty good at it. Yeah. Uh, and you sort of know... You know, the airports, you know, the airlines, you know, what you can and cannot do. Yeah. Um, you know, interestingly, I, I had an assistant uh, for a while, but it, uh, it's much more efficient for me to just do it myself. So, right. Uh, no, no offense to your very nice <laughs> assistant, but uh, I, I found that they're more work than they're worth. And, uh, and so, so. presumably then, so the booking the flights and checking in online and printing the boarding passes, it's kind of your version of doing the washing up or mowing the lawn or something. Yeah, it's like you, you, can, don't have you can think of it that those way. Those things, sure. so it's like that's yeah. the upkeep of lifestyle that yep. most people would have in other ways. That's right. Um, that's right. And so, like with, like with the travel, I suppose the other aspect of doing a lot of flights in a short space of time is like it becomes tiring. You just said that you came in on the red eye last night. Like what's your, do you have a... Uh, you know, do you have particular sort of strategies for dealing with just the tiredness that air travel? Because I find like it's the dehydration that brings tiredness. It's not even in the time zones for me so much. It's just the just the literal well, do, sort of know, having I, to I travel. I thing. Avoid drinking alcohol on the plane. Right. I drink plenty of well non-alcoholic uh, liquids, water yeah. primarily. Um, you know, at, at, at MIT, where I spent many years, uh, we have a saying that sleep is for the weak. Uh, so or 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 you know I'll sleep in my wooden pajamas later, uh, and, and so you know it's it's just I I don't I've never required since I was 16 years old I've never slept more than you know three four hours a night so I oh, really okay. I get a lot more productivity this way uh, wow okay and never that more that facilitates so that that lifestyle never more than three or four hours a night so I wouldn't say never but yeah rarely I don't I don't use an alarm I just kind of wake up. And, uh, and there's not a thing in your rhythm which is like once a week you have a longer sleep to nah. sort of catch it up or anything. That's just how you yeah. exist day to day. Wow. Okay. And do you? Why do you think you can do that and so many other people can't? Lucky genetics. Genetics. Yeah. So you don't think it's like diet or no, like not. <laughs> exercise or magic pills that you found? No. <laughs> no, no, I don't, don't take any. <laughs> Of those drugs that try yeah. to alter your, uh, you know, your sleeping patterns. I don't yeah. do any of that stuff. Uh, I do hike a lot, but I don't think that's really has anything to do with it. Wow, that's so cool. Um, do you feel like you will ever stop doing the travel and just like settle in one place, or do you think this is going to be you? Yeah, no. I mean, it? eventually it's got to stop, right? The traveling is uh, physically wearing and daring yeah. and. You know, eventually I'll get old enough that uh, it won't anymore be pleasant. It'll be uh, more of a chore than, yeah. uh, than than a pleasure, and then I'll stop. 
But it's basically you're waiting until it's a tiring thing rather than having a plan of... When it stops having when yeah, it stops being it stops fun, being I'll fun. stop. It's yeah. as simple as that, right? I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I have a vague plan about going back to university teaching, but that's even assuming that university teaching is what it is in yeah. 10 or 15 years. Who knows? Right? And that could I mean, easily be done online. It could be online completely done. Or, yeah, you know, it could yeah. be virtual classrooms For and sure. so on. And I, yeah. I like the interaction with students, so mm. I'm not sure that the virtual thing would really be as motivating for me, but yeah. uh, yeah. you know, I'll stay flexible on that, on that point. But you know, my, my general strategy is to uh, you know, go back to teaching probably in Australia somewhere. Yeah. And in terms of your, how you would describe your work-life balance, so I mean, we talked about Nick Cave and Burning Man and sort of you know, being driven in terms of where you go as much by those things as by work like how do you see work life balance are you do you feel like you have a good balance uh probably not, probably not. i mean I, I i enjoy my work so much i'd be rather doing my work and working with data and thinking about you know the things that i think about than lying on a beach yeah so okay. for me actually my work isn't work i love yeah. my work and, and i enjoy it and i find more pleasure and more intellectual stimulation in that than doing what other people would call vacations. So I don't take yeah. a lot of vacations, and I work probably an obscene number of hours on a weekly basis compared to most people, but I like it. Yeah, so it doesn't, sure. doesn't feel like work to me. It's uh, it's part of the fun. I like meeting with customers. I like meeting with our engineers. I like problem solving. I like those things more than I like lying on a beach and reading a book. Yeah. Right? So if I'm going to read a book, I like to read a book that has uh, sort of intellectual content, not, uh, you know, some light literature. Kind of thing. <laughs> it's not really my style. Well, I hope you're going to enjoy How to Be a Productivity in India anyway. But I, I find sometimes when I'm in India, I'll read lots of nonfiction, mm-hmm. um, you know, stuff that gives me that intellectual stimulation. But there's always like a day where it tips over and I start reading like a trashy novel and it's always like this blissful sort of like, oh, okay, I'm just going to have a day of just like... <laughs> Don't get me wrong, I like good storytelling. So, yeah. you know, trashy novel, novel probably not, but it depends what you call trashy novel. You know, is John Grisham a trashy, trashy novel? He's a good storyteller, so yeah. I also like that but on probably, occasion. Yeah. <laughs> right? so, uh, you know. yeah. What do you feel like you like miss or give up by having the lifestyle that you do? Uh, you know, I've... I've thought about that a lot because there are definitely trade-offs you know i you know uh you know i have no wife and kids so that whole traditional family thing and white picket fence and so on which i don't miss the white picket fence but (laughs) you know you you definitely have to cultivate different kinds of relationships yeah Uh, and so i've you know found that being favorite uncle is a much more (laughs) rewarding thing than having my own kids but of course i don't know because i don't have my own kids yeah yeah um you know, I had to give up my radio show, so I was a DJ on radio, and, and so, you know, you have to be there on a regular basis to do the show, and if I'm in India, I can't really do the show so easily, uh, so I had to give up my radio show, I can't really play on organized sports teams, so I used mm. to play a fair amount of sports, Now I can do pickup, but I can't really do, uh, you know, kind of league competition kind yeah. of stuff, because yeah. you're not there to practice and participate on a, you know daily weekly basis uh, so yeah there are certain trade-offs that i've made i can't have a dog yeah you know, i like yeah, pets and i yeah. you know can't have a dog when you're traveling you know 365 days a year so but in terms of like you know the sort of family and relationships kind of stuff i mean do you like sounds like being being the favorite uncle mm. and like have you know having um some of those relationships like that give that brings you fulfillment right so like yeah. even though there's a, a trade-off of not having the 
wife and picket fence and all that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah. Like, you know, you get that sense of family right. like, just in a different and, way. And to, uh, through a very extensive kind of friends and family network. So sometimes favorite uncle isn't necessarily my siblings' kids, right, but okay, you know, yeah, yeah, of my course, you know, yeah. good friends' kids. Yeah. I can be uncle in quotes yeah, 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 in many yeah. ways. So. Um, do you feel like, in that sense, you have sort of lots of different families around the world with people that you, you travel back to and see? Yeah, absolutely. See regularly and that kind of thing. So, like, you work a lot of hours. You're working on, you know, some really uh, cutting-edge stuff. Um, how do you see uh, success in that? Like, do you have a sort of, uh, do you have a sort of strong idea of what you want your the legacy of your work to be, or do you have a strong idea of, like, this is this would be the ultimate thing to achieve? Uh, you know, like, just like, is there a sort of like driving goal within the work that you do? Mm. So I, th- I think it comes back to that um, innovation and value creation we were talking about earlier, mm. uh, and and you know I have certain industries that I care more about. So I, you know I, there are lots of people who use data in very interesting ways to influence people's buying behavior. That's not really the thing that I particularly get excited about. So I'm much more interested in you know uh, in improving you know healthcare or safety in a vehicle or you know a uh, improving a manufacturing process for, yeah. for 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 creating something. These are more interesting for me. And sort of, you know, uh, uh, I, I'm I'm not really a very American consumer because I'm not really a consumer at all. <laughs> yeah. uh, I consume experiences. I don't consume the things. Yeah. Uh, and and so I, I'm less tuned into that kind of thing than I am mm. to uh, using data to enable solutions for sort of better experiences yeah, uh, yeah. And that, that that could be lifestyle experiences it could be uh you know healthcare experiences whatever those things are that are yeah. important to people so yeah um i just thought of a question which i hope i'm going to articulate this right so when so when you are working on stuff which is to do with influencing the consumer behavior mm. and obviously that's something that you don't you know, subscribe to, or it's not part of you to to buy lots of things and have the big TV and all that sort of stuff. Um, does that set you up with a? Do you feel like you have a sort of uh, um, like? Do you have quite an odd relationship with the people at the other end of that? So the consumers are like, do you ever think, oh, I kind of wish I did buy into the big TV, or do you, or do you buy the other? No, on, on the other never, hand, I definitely never wish that. Uh, and on, and so. on the other hand, do you feel like you can use big data to sort of manipulate people into buying a TV that they don't need? And like, does that concern you? Uh, well, again, I think people get to make their own choices. Yeah. And the, the goal of those kinds of analytics is to present them the choice that they most want at the time that they want it. Right, you're not gonna, you know. I don't believe in sort of, you know, nanny uh, states where you know yeah. you're not allowed to do certain things. I think that you know, if you if you get the right item in front of the person at the right time, then they either want it or they don't want it. You're not gonna manipulate something into something they don't want, but you may present them an opportunity that they wouldn't have had wouldn't have had otherwise that allows you to yeah. sell your gear. Now again, that's not necessarily the thing that gets me most excited, but the uh, the machine learning and the problem solving that, you know, uh, that says this is the right time to make this this offer. Yeah. This is very yeah. interesting because yeah. you can use the same things to influence someone to 
uh, make a decision about uh, their healthcare or about their driving habits or sure, about something yeah. else that yeah. you know at least I find more important. But I, you know, I'm very non-judgmental. If someone, you know, each person gets to decide what's important for themselves, and if you're excited about, you know, uh, trying to get the right opportunity for someone to buy the right size television for themselves, then that's great. You should yeah, yeah, you should go at yeah. it, uh, uh, and and I'll focus on what I am interested in. So it sounds like the work in all of that, um, the appeal of the work is the game, in a sense. You know, it's Problem this solving. sort of uh, solving the problem and getting to. You know, getting to that sort of like optimized solution or putting the right pieces together to to come up with the right answer and that kind of thing. So it's like feels like there's a, a feels like you're sort of chasing uh, something exciting at the end of the process kind of thing. Yeah, I definitely am a goal oriented person. When I mm. go hiking, I want to climb to the top of the mountain. Right. And okay. So it's a very type A thing, <laughs> uh, that I definitely am uh, guilty of. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so then finally, what are the goals that you have set yourself that you haven't achieved yet? Are there things that you have on your radar that you're really like pushing for or looking forward to? Uh, so my philosophy is every month I should take at least one thing off my bucket list. Huh, and every okay. month I should put at least one more thing on the bucket list. Because if the bucket huh. list goes to zero, then you're done, right? So, <laughs> so I'm always adding things. I have a long list of things that I want to do. And right. They, you know, they, they uh, range from you know, hiking in a particular desert on a full moon is one thing on my bucket list to you know, attending a certain music festival to... Uh, playing uh, Bobby Fischer in chess. Unfortunately, <laughs> that one expired not because of me, but because of him. Right. So that that one I can't do. But uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, so uh, maybe I'll go to Norway and hang out there right? So, uh, uh, but so so yeah, I'm always adding things to the bucket list, yeah. uh, and but also taking things off. Yeah. Right? So uh, so when you're saying like you don't consume things, but you consume experiences, that yes. sounds like. You consume, consume experiences. Ex- experiences pretty voraciously if it's yes. one on, one off every month. Absolutely. What what was what does the last month look like? What have you just added on and what did you take off? Uh, so I went to a music and cultural festival in Monterrey, Mexico uh, last month, which uh, is a mix of kind of, there was dance, there was music and so on, and there was a group of friends that, that, that went to yeah. and so on. So that uh, that got taken off. Uh, and uh, uh, putting on, uh, someone gave me some uh, new mountain recommendations to climb in China that okay. I want to go uh, cool. go do uh, sometime. Who knows when? Cool. And we're uh, recording this in sort of early October, mid October. So tell tell me what your like. What are the highlights over the next few months before Christmas? Like, are there? Uh, presumably quite a few different cities that you've got uh, on your list. Yeah, there are quite a few. So tonight I'll go to uh, Moscow, and then I'll go to Helsinki. I'll be teaching in Helsinki. So uh, your London stop is like less than, what is it, like 12 hours? You're yeah, in London, basically and then, 12 yeah. hours. Wow. Less than 12 hours. Yeah. Wow, okay. London's so a good transit city because course, you, know, yeah. you can get in and get a full day in before you you know move on to, right, the, to yeah, the next yeah, one. Yeah, Whereas yeah. if you fly anywhere in the continent, then you're basically arriving at and you know, lose a day too late. Yeah, your, your day's half done. So. Yeah. So Moscow tonight. Moscow tonight, yeah. then uh, Helsinki tomorrow night. <laughs> a couple of days in Helsinki uh, teaching, and then yeah. I'll go to Cairo for a couple of days, and I'll go to Turkey. Uh, then I'll be speaking at some conferences in uh, 
Brussels, uh, Stockholm, and, and, and so on. Uh, and that's just the next week and a half or something? Yeah, basically. <laughs> well, uh, I definitely want... Uh, like I want a, a login membership for your AirMile account for sure. <laughs> you have uh, to compete with my sisters for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you must be. You must have uh, like such a lot of currency when it comes to those things. Like people, you know, people say, oh, "Can you uh, sort me out a free flight here or that kind of thing?" And the airlines must know you really well, right? Like you must get like. Well, no, I'm not. You know, I'm not particularly loyal because I I fly on everybody. So right. it's not like I'm you know George Clooney and you know <laughs> trying to rack up ten million miles on one airline. I don't, yeah. I don't do that. Uh, so I just whatever is the best schedule, the the the, the cheapest flight, that's the one I take. And yeah. basically, I'm platinum on all the airlines, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> so I'm not loyal to any particular one. I just yeah. you know fly whatever's convenient. Cool. Well, it's just been fascinating chatting, and um, yeah, like I'm sort of. Dizzy just listening to your schedule over the next couple of weeks. Uh, but just given that, and given you're only here for 12 hours or so, um, just, just a massive thank you for being on Beyond Busy and uh, spending some time. Sure, well, thanks for coming down to the city. So thanks again to Stephen for being on the show. I've also just come back from the Lake District. My sister lives up in Lancaster and uh, spent a couple of days up there did some lovely walking up in the Grisdale Forest there and was telling my sister and then another friend of mine, Paul, who lives up there, that I really should get out and do more walking. I've been doing a little bit more walking uh, back down here in Brighton, uh, but really loved walking up in the Lake District. And then on the train home, so I'm on the train back from Lancaster, another friend texts me saying, I'm coming down to Brighton for a couple of days and I'm thinking doing a full day cliff walking along beachy head and your sort of coastal views that kind of thing are you around are you up for it and i just immediately texted back yes i've been talking about this i totally want to do more of this stuff and i think it comes off the back of a very short urban walk i did in new york a couple of months ago i was going across i've been across the brooklyn bridge a couple of times which is just such an experience it's just an amazing it's an amazing walk full of tourists obviously and uh, can be a bit hectic but just amazing views and just a stunning and iconic thing to do and i decided i wanted to go over the manhattan bridge which is it's a beautiful bridge in itself, but because it's the poor relation, it's so close to Brooklyn Bridge, no one's on it. So I ended up on Manhattan Bridge uh, about 11 in the morning uh, a couple of months ago uh, one day, it was, and it was a weekday. There was no one else on this bridge. One guy cycled past me in the opposite direction, but literally there was no one else on this bridge. And the, the sort of feeling of solitude in the middle of, basically in the middle of Manhattan, it was, it was just such a weird slightly ghostly slightly strange feeling and it just got me into quite a weird headspace and i basically i basically wrote the structure of the beyond busy book just on this bridge uh, journey if you like of sort of 20 minutes and it just really reminded me julia cameron who wrote the artist way has another book called walking in this world and talks a lot about how walking can be a very transformative part of the creative process and it just really got me back into thinking about that and thinking, man, I, I really should have done more of that because I do think it it is a very important thing for creativity. And I'm probably waffling on a little bit now, but I guess what I'm getting to at the end of this Beyond Busy episode is if you have a chance over the next couple of days, get out and walk, get out and do a half an hour, one hour, 
you know, three hour, whole day, whatever you can manage, whatever fits in with your schedule, but just walking somewhere interesting, somewhere different, getting your brain and body into a different kind of terrain, different kind of headspace really just so just such a useful and interesting and productive thing so i i think i'm going to make a bit of a mid-year resolution for myself to make sure i get out and do my walking i even bought some walking boots so i kind of feel like i need to do that to to make sure that i've uh, not made one of those foolhardy purchases so yeah get out and do some walking it just feels like such an obvious thing but i i feel like i've fallen in love with it again and rediscovered it in the last few weeks and um looking forward to doing more of that um thanks to all the usual people so thanks to mark stebman at bloomsbury digital thanks to the think productive crew for getting the word out looking forward to catching up actually with the think productive crew uh, we have our ninja summit a uh, couple of uh, conference calls for our team around the world and then uh, sort of one day get together for our team in the uk down here in brighton at the start of july so looking forward to catching up with all of those guys and uh, they've obviously just been doing fantastic work during my absence and my sabbatical period which to be honest kind of leaves me thinking why do they need me do i need to go back into the business at all those are all the questions that i've been mulling over for a while should i be doing something different i don't know it's all still a bit up in the air to be honest uh, but yeah thanks again for tuning in to another episode of beyond busy we'll be back in two weeks i've got some really interesting guests that i've been lining up to do recordings with so i'm kind of at the end now of the sort of backlog of recordings that i built up before the sabbatical period and i'm i'm uh, sort of bracing myself to get back into uh, regular recording of podcasts so what you're going to hear over the next little period is podcasts that are uh released much closer to the time that i did the conversation some of these conversations are kind of six months nine months old kind of thing um, but they're going to be much closer to the release date as i have used up the backlog and we'll be getting back more into it so that's all coming in the next few weeks if you haven't subscribed please do please spread the word come and say hi on twitter at graham Alcott, and uh, you can contact me at graham there's a form on that site and i'll see you in two weeks thanks again for listening goodbye for now